The next time someone calls you complete trash, don't get offended. Because they're right. Well, mostly right. See, instead of trying to win whatever argument you're in, you know, kindly correct them. Be like, no, I am not complete trash. In fact, I am 98.5% trash, and so are you. Now, if they enjoy science, you will resolve whatever problem or argument you're having between you guys because it's a very good joke. And if they don't understand what you just said, well, who told you to call them trash? Hi, I'm Sanjana, and I'm sure you're wondering why I started off the second episode of my podcast calling pretty much all of my listeners trash. It's because it's actually true. From basic biology classes in high school, you probably know that all living things are made up of DNA. And while you might think that all of our DNA makes up who we are, it's actually only 2% of our DNA that makes us who we are. The rest of it is just there. So how did we manage to figure out that the entire human population is trash? Lucky for you, I did the research. This is the science of yesterday. A podcast where I tell you every nitty gritty detail of how modern science came to be. For our second episode, wow, we'll be exploring the history of genetics. So what is genetics? I'll give you the simple explanation without all the complicated chemistry. DNA is essentially a database of information. We commonly refer to DNA as the blueprint of life. I like to imagine it more as a box of puzzle pieces, except none of the pieces fit together, except maybe like 20 to make a picture and you have to figure out which ones. It's a polymer made up of units called nucleotides, and these nucleotides code for, well, life. But remember how I said that 98.5% of DNA is junk? That just means that 98.5% of our DNA doesn't really do anything. The 1.5% of remaining DNA are what actually contain the codes to our genes. Genes encode proteins that give rise to features like our skin color, eye color, and essentially they code for every single physical feature you have, down to that weird mole you have on your back. See, DNA is made up of four key nucleotides, which I'll be referring to as bases for the rest of this episode. A, G, C, and T. These four bases can be linked together to make a gene, which encodes for a protein. And there's an unimaginable number of sequences that can be made using just these four bases. Now, everyone's genetic makeup isn't the same. They may be similar, but no two people have the same genetic makeup, except maybe twins. This is due to genetic variation, meaning there can be multiple versions of the same gene called alleles. It is these allelic combinations that really give rise to our physical features, or in genetic terms, our phenotype. As humans, we typically have two copies of a gene and multiple alleles. Let me explain it this way. Let's take blood type as an example. There are three main alleles of the gene that determines blood type, A, B, and I. Now A and B are what we consider to be dominant genes. 
Think of it like A and B are different types of the same protein, and I is a broken form of the protein. Now, people who are type A typically have at least one copy of the A allele for blood type. So their genetic combination could be either AA or AI, giving rise to their blood type being A. Similarly, for people with a B blood type, they would be either BB or BI. In the case of someone's blood type being AB, their allelic combination is AB because they have both versions of the dominant gene and therefore they're both being expressed. Those with O have two copies of the broken allele, making their genotype II. Hopefully, this kind of cleared things up a little. So how do we pass these genes down to our children? To explain, we'll first have to look at the cells themselves. There are two main kinds of cells in our body. Somatic cells, which make up our tissues and organs, and germ cells. Germ cells are pretty much a sperm and an egg. Compared to somatic cells, germ cells only have half of the parent's genome, meaning they only have one copy of the gene. When the sperm fuses with the egg, the result is a zygote, with two copies of each gene ready to develop in an organism. This is the basic concept of heredity. A concept that was argued about for years, and I mean years. Our theories on genetics and heredity has kept on changing since, like, before Jesus. The earliest mentions of heredity was well before the Middle Ages, and as keen observers, we already had an idea that heredity existed when the baby would pop out of the mother, looking like the mother or looking like the father. See, a lot of these theories were actually made by ancient Greek philosophers. The earliest known mention of the theory of heredity was by Hippocrates' brick-and-mortar theory in 5 BCE. He suggested that hereditary material is physical and not the kind of blueprint that DNA is. Essentially, he proposed that everything was concentrated in the male germ cell and formed a human in the womb. For example, the bicep of an Olympic weightlifter would result in bicep parts being present in the sperm. As a result, the children would have big biceps. Could you imagine being the son or daughter of like an Olympic weightlifter and then your baby just comes out like absolutely jacked? I don't know. Are there like instead of, you know, we usually have like fat babies. What if there were muscly babies? Is that even a thing? That would be kind of funny. Aristotle, on the other hand, thought differently. His idea was different to that of Hippocrates, suggesting that an organism is transmitted through semen and menstrual blood, which interact in the womb to make a child. His argument against Hippocrates' theory was that people who would lose an arm commonly don't give birth to one-armed babies, and also that people can transmit characteristics that appear later in life like male pattern baldness or graying hair. At its core, Aristotle's theory was that everything came from the man, and that the woman didn't contribute anything genetically, just the nutrients for the child to grow. Literally, his theory was that the male would provide a miniature human, like those, those plastic mini-babies, and that would just expand in the stomach like a grow monster. Grow monsters, by the way, are those, like, those toys that you would get at Toys R Us that you would stick in the water and they would become like 15 times bigger. 
Aristotle's plastic baby theory also alluded to a type of blueprint model, suggesting that inheritance involved the potential to produce characteristics. These characteristics were not predetermined. This was actually the closest thing to epigenesis, which is the phenomenon where an entire organism is able to develop from a clump of cells. It means that the organism isn't some grow monster, but rather a result of a very controlled developmental process that allows these cells to divide and become the cells that make up our body. But contrary to Aristotle, another Greek philosopher called Epicurus proposed the contribution of both males and females in heredity. So, equality! Uh. See, Epicurus actually used his eyes and noticed that children looked like both of their parents. Kind of amazing what basic observation can do sometimes. So he suggested a co-dominant form of inheritance. His theory was outlined by one of his followers where, quote, As the male and female seeds combine, if the woman's strength dominates the man's strength, then the children are born looking like their mothers, and vice versa. And just because Greek philosophers seem to have quite a few theories on inheritance, why don't we throw one more into the mix? Anaxagoras first proposed a theory that was actually believed to be true for over 200 years, called the preformation theory. He essentially thought that the entire organism was fully preformed in the sperm or in the egg, and that it had to unfold and grow. He also thought that the side of the body in which the child developed determined its sex, where the left produces males and the right produces females. All of these theories on how the mother molds the child might actually be the basis behind all those myths that are like, eat a banana and you'll get a boy. All these theories are fun and all, but up until the 17th century, epigenesis was the leading theory. But it was then replaced by the preformation theory, so huge step in the backwards direction. So what happened there? Creationism happened. Around the 17th century, creationist theories pretty much dominated the field of science. Preformationism was accepted because it supported creationism. See, as per creationism, the members of each species, both current and future, were predetermined and present in the ovary of the first female of that species. Now, preformation theory basically said that organisms were preformed in the gonads of the parents, which conveniently supported creationist philosophies. That is, until Mendel came along to save the day. And Mendel's whole Thing is a doozy. Down to the intricacies of the experiments with a couple of scandals. Gregor Mendel was a monk, and he apparently became one because it was the only way for him to get a free education. He also like he he also looks like Dwight Schrute from The Office. Like look up a picture or maybe I'll post it on my Instagram. But he looks like Dwight Schrute from The Office. And I don't mean like a little bit, I mean it's the resemblance is uncanny. Like, I don't know what the... I don't know who Dwight Schrute's actor's name is, but is he the reincarnation of Gregor Mendel? Mendel said that by becoming a monk, he didn't have the, quote, perpetual anxiety about a means of livelihood. And as a university student, I can confirm that as someone who pays for their own things, 
I do indeed have perpetual anxiety about a means of livelihood, so he did dodge a bullet there. In 1856, Mandel was given permission to carry out studies on pea plants to study heredity. Now, peas are gross. I don't like peas personally, but as a test subject, I think peas are great. Mandel chose to work with peas because their fertilization was pretty easy to control. It was a simple transfer of pollen between plants and he would carry out two different experiments. Some with self-fertilization, which is when the pollen used for fertilization would come from the same flower, and cross-fertilization, where the pollen would come from a different flower. Mendel started off by staring at the self-fertilized plants for over two years. Now, why two years? He was looking to make sure that the plant's physical traits remained constant with each generation. He would make sure that the grandchildren would look exactly like their grandparents, and by doing this, he was creating many pure lines of plants, meaning each of them had two copies of the same allele. In other words, they were all homozygous. Before we get into Mandel's experiments, let me explain their importance. Before Mandel, people thought that genetic traits was the result of mixing the parents' traits, like mixing coffee and milk to create a latte. Now, if your child was extra pretty, it would be a latte with latte art. Keep this in mind, not the latte art part. Mandel conducted experiments where he would cross plants that differed by one characteristic, like the color of their flowers. He would transfer the pollen of a purple-flowered plant onto one with white flowers and observe the plant babies that resulted. Now the babies were not lilac. Instead, they were all purple, like one of the parents. With this simple experiment, Mandel established the first principle of Mendelian inheritance, the principle of uniformity. This is a phenomenon where a cross of two pure parents differing by one trait produce a child that carries the trait of only one of the parents. So you've got all these purple-flowered plants of the first generation. So what would happen if we self-fertilized those plants? Based off Mendel's initial experiments, we'd be expecting purple kids. By self-fertilizing hundreds and hundreds of these purple flowers of the cross, Mandel discovered something quite monumental. In the progeny of these purple-flowered plants were a couple of white-flowered children. Exactly a quarter of the progeny would always end up being white. Now, this wasn't some random mutation. The progeny of these self-crosses were always at a ratio of 3 to 1 for purple to white flowers. Now, knowing how alleles work, this is pretty easy to explain. If you remember from the beginning, I mentioned dominant and recessive traits. The purple pea flowers resulting from the first cross are what we call heterozygous. In other words, they carried one copy of the allele for purple flowers and one copy of the allele for white flowers. But since purple is dominant, that's the feature that we are seeing. Crossing a heterozygous plant with a heterozygous plant is where things get spicy and we get some math. In these cases, we always see that 25% of the progeny have a recessive phenotype, while 75% carry the dominant phenotype. But Mendel didn't know this. Mendel attributed his results to something called elementin, 
some kind of heritable substance. He was also able to establish his second principle, the principle of segregation. This principle states that the particles, as Mendel hypothesized, segregate to two ends of a dividing germ cell. As a result, there is only one copy of the gene in the germ cell progeny. But Mendel didn't want the pea plant excitement to stop there, oh no. He was like, what if I cross plants? With two different traits. So he crossed a plant with yellow round peas and one with green wrinkly peas. Now like the first cross, the first generation of children all carried the dominant traits and were yellow and round. Then he self-fertilized these round and yellow pea plants. The result was more math. The kids carry traits at a 9 to 3 to 3 to 1 ratio, where yellow and round pea plants showed up 9 times more than yellow and wrinkly and green and round plants both showed up 3 times more than the green and wrinkly children. This allowed for the establishment of the principle of independent assortment, stating that there is nothing really controlling what characteristics are inherited. Each characteristic is inherited independently from each other. Basically, being green and wrinkled isn't a package deal. So if the Grinch, like, marries someone, he shouldn't have to worry about getting green, wrinkly kids. As long as his partner isn't... Is the Grinch even a man? Like, what are the Grinch's pronouns? Is it they? I guess, okay, as long as their partner isn't heterozygous for green and wrinkly, the children will be spared of the green and wrinkly... Oh my god. I don't know what kind of tangent that was, but these groundbreaking and surprisingly simple experiments established what is now known as Mendelian inheritance. And it pretty much laid down a chunk of the groundwork for modern genetics. Now, remember how I said Mendel's entire story was, for lack of better words, a doozy? In 1936, R.A. Fisher, a British statistician, it took me four takes to say that. So, he's a British statistician who kind of looks like Andy Samberg, and he decided to replicate Mendel's experiments and concluded that Mendel's data was a little too good to be true. In science, red flags are always raised when data looks a little too perfect, because, well, science. There's always going to be a reasonable degree of error in anything that you do. It's just something you have to live with. Now, because of this, it's largely believed that Mendel's data was falsified to some degree because his data was a little too perfect. I think Fisher took this whole thing a little too personally because he calls Mendel's data, quote, abominable, shocking, and quote. Who hurt you? But Mendel had some pretty loyal fans, like Daniel J. Hartle and Daniel J. Fairbanks. Daniel and Daniel. They basically called BS, and they accused Fisher of trying to destroy Mendel's legacy. They wrote an entire book on why Mendel would never fabricate his results. Now personally, I'm on Mendel's side on this one. I think he's too good a man to do something so malicious, but believe what you want to believe. Now, Mendel published his work way back in 1865. So why were these scandals happening a good 70 years later? It's because, well, 
no one really paid attention to the poor man. People appreciated him for being so thorough but didn't really understand his work. He tried explaining it to his group of scientist friends but no one really understood what he was getting at and they all got distracted by some shiny algebra. True story. But one of the botanists he was in correspondence with told him to try his experiments out with hawkweed. These experiments didn't work. And this wasn't because Mandel was wrong, it's because hawkweed also reproduces asexually. But Mandel didn't know that and this cast a pretty large doubt in his mind. Regardless, Mandel was pretty sure his work was impactful and he would regularly tell his friend Niesel, my time will come. Like, he just quietly stood there where people just ignored his work and was like, that's okay, people will know soon, I'll get my recognition when I need it. And then he died and we only realized the importance of his work after he died. So what happened before we rediscovered Mendel? Charles Darwin, who you may know as the founder of the theory of evolution, was going off on his own tangent about the theory of heredity, suggesting the mechanism of pangenesis in 1868. He proposed the existence of gemmules, little particles of inheritance that are thrown off by the cells of the body. Darwin's theory suggested that the body environment can modify these gemmules, which would then assemble in the reproductive organs. Of course, he had no evidence at all to support this, because he was just speculating. It's like when we have those weird revelations where like, what if we're all bacteria in a petri dish? See, lots of people didn't support Darwin's weird theory of inheritance, like even his own cousin, Francis Galton, who was an English statistician. Galton transfused blood from a white rabbit to a black rabbit, and according to pangenesis, the black rabbit should give birth to white rabbits. But it didn't. So he proved Darwin wrong, and Darwin's response was, Well, I didn't say it was blood, it's probably something else, and... I get this really weird feeling of satisfaction knowing his own cousin put effort into disproving his theory. Like, I really don't like Darwin as a general human being, like his theory of evolution is great and all, but him? Like as a person? Not so much. And you'll know soon in another episode. In 1885, August Weissmann, a German evolutionary biologist, published The Continuity of the Germplasm as a Foundation of a Theory of Heredity. He disagreed with Darwin, arguing that only the hereditary substance in germ cells was heritable, establishing the difference between somatic cells and germ cells. He also established how heredity in sexual organisms is more complex than in asexual ones. Where was Weissman where Mandel needed him? Honestly, that one botanist who told him to work on hawkweed like, did him so dirty. In 1889, Hugo de Vries, a Dutch botanist, published a book based on Darwin's pangenesis theory and Weissman's views of the germplasm theory. He proposed that the basis of heredity is based in the nucleus of the cell, and that these particles come from the mother and the father respectively. He called these particles pangenin. Later in 1909, Wilhelm Johansson proposed the word gene, derived from de Vries's pangenin, 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 
DeVries was also one of the three people who reintroduced Mendel's work into the scientific community. In 1900, Eric von Schirmack, an Austrian agronomist, was conducting similar experiments to Mendel when he stumbled onto his paper, and along with Karl Korenz, a German botanist, and DeVries, the three of them reintroduced Mendel's pea paper into pea paper, peas paper, to the scientific world, finally bringing him the praise and recognition he deserved. Mendel's work was impacting the field of genetics almost immediately. Later in 1902, Sir Archibald E. Garrett, a British physician and chemist, used Mendel's principles to identify the first human disease tied to genetic causes called alcaptonuria. Now, alcaptonuria is a condition where there is an abnormal buildup of an acid in the body. Garrett was the first to establish a non-bacterial origin of disease attributed to genetics. This huge leap forward in the field of genetics where almost immediately after Mendel's work was reintroduced into the scientific community, we were starting to see the importance of genes and our DNA and what they control, kind of tells you how impactful Mendel's work really is. Let me introduce you to who I think is Mendel's biggest fanboy, William Bateson. William Bateson was an English biologist who, between 1902 to 1910, carried out breeding experiments with a group consisting mainly of women on many plant and animal species. The results of his experiments supported Mendel's principles of heredity. In a letter to Adam Sedgwick, a zoologist at Cambridge, Bateson was the first to use the term genetics to describe this field of study from the word geno, meaning to give birth. It's interesting how the word genetics and gene weren't actually influenced by each other at all. Some might say it was destiny. Bateson is also credited with co-discovering the phenomenon of genetic linkage along with Reginald Punnett and Edith Saunders. Genetic linkage is a concept where two genes on a chromosome are commonly inherited with each other because they're so close to each other. This is one of the prominent exceptions to the law of independent assortment. But not everyone was as excited about Mendel as Bateson and his team were. Carl Pearson, an English mathematician, and Raphael Weldon, an English evolutionary biologist, were a loud opposition to the Mendelian theory of inheritance. They were both ancestrians, and the law of ancestral heredity is an extremely confusing concept for me personally like i spent four hours trying to understand it and it it got me nowhere but i'm gonna i'm seriously gonna try my best essentially what the law of ancestral heredity outlines is that as generations go down the contribution of the parents reduces per generation in essence the parents contribute half of the child's nature the grandparents contribute a quarter and so forth Essentially, they believed that heredity is based on a geometric series that must come to unity or add up to one. It's all a bunch of complicated math, which is the biggest reason my brain was not able to process it. Now, this is a stark contrast to Mendel's theory of inheritance, which is simple and easy to understand. According to Mendelian inheritance, half the character comes from the mother and the other half comes from the father. 
Now, I'm very glad this is the case or else I would be disastrously terrible at genetics. So Carl Pearson, along with Weldon, was pushing forward ancestrian ideas, and Bateson was a well-known, outspoken critic of their ideas, as he should be, because no one likes Matt. There was a gigantic feud in the genetics community between Pearson and Weldon and Bateson. It all started with talks about the mechanisms of evolution. See, Weldon believed that mutations only contributed to evolution in very exceptional circumstances. Bateson, on the other hand, was approaching evolution from a Mendelian standpoint, arguing that variations played a large role in evolution, which is correct. Variations in a species are one of the biggest contributing factors to evolution because advantageous variations are typically passed down to subsequent generations. Other scientists, in addition to Bateson, criticized Weldon's research into heredity and evolution. Apparently, the math he used was incredibly confusing, and according to this article I'm reading, quote, repugnant, which is a strong word to use, but honestly, I, I was reading the article and I also found it repugnant. People commonly criticized Weldon's approach, entertaining his ideas, but Bateson's entourage would criticize the ideas themselves. The entire situation was boiling up to be an entire Real Housewives situation, and it was getting messy. It's like something out of a teen movie. See, Weldon and Bateson apparently used to be good friends, you know, back in middle school, but then Bateson and Weldon joined high school, and Bateson joined the Mendelian clique, and Weldon joined the Ancestrian clique, which resulted in their bitter, bitter rivalry. But this isn't some teen soap situation. I don't actually know if the fight actually got resolved and if they became friends in the end. I hope they did. I don't think they did, though. In Weldon's book, Materials for the Study of Variation, he directly attacked Bateson's views on inheritance. Now, while this was all going on, Francis Galton, an English statistician and also a tired old dude in the organization Bateson and Weldon were part of, tried to resolve the feud by sticking Pearson, Weldon, and Bateson in the same committee to research heredity. It's kind of the equivalent of a teacher forcing you to work on a project with someone you hate to solve the problems between the two of you. Like, oh, if they work together, maybe they'll learn more about each other and be friends. But Walton and Pearson eventually just left the committee. But the feud doesn't end there. Oh no. Bateson and Walden already absolutely loathed each other after Walden attacked Bateson's book. But here's where it gets really messy. After Bateson completed his experiments on Mendelian inheritance, Weldon read Bateson's work, and since Mendelian inheritance was a fairly new concept, it was not compatible with other works of the time, so Weldon dismissed it, concluding that the law of segregation is not universal and can only be considered for specific races of a particular ancestry. Whenever you see an anomaly, it's always good to investigate it further, because anomalies could be steps in the right direction, you just, you just might not know it yet. We wouldn't have gotten to where we are today without looking into the exceptions to our working theories. I always like the saying, conduct experiments to prove theories wrong, not to confirm what you believe to be true. Weldon's dismissal of Bateson's work is a classic case of confirmation bias. 
He said that the biggest mistake Mendel made was refusing to take ancestry into account. Now, because Mendel didn't conduct research based off ancestry, his results apparently didn't have much substance. He considered the law of ancestral heredity untouched and just safe from any counter-argument, while considering Mendel's principles unproved. But coming in to save his hero, Bateson wrote an entire paper defending Mendel in response to Weldon's criticism, to which Weldon half-heartedly replied, according to the paper I'm reading, with, quote, no real constructive dialogue. Pearson and Weldon were quite hell-bent on interpreting breeding results from a purely physiological theory of inheritance standpoint. And they never really provided any real mechanism, just a bunch of math. This entire feud went on for way too long for me to describe in this podcast, but it was so bad that Bateson and Weldon were literally encouraged to fight it out. Aside from this entire feud, in the early 1900s around the same time, in a lab at Columbia University, Thomas Hunt Morgan was working on fruit flies. Along with Fernandez Payne, he mutated fruit flies to identify heritable mutations. The work being done established the famous fly room at Columbia University. He noticed that when white-eyed flies are crossbred with red-eyed females, all the progeny were red-eyed. Now this result aligns with Mendelian inheritance, but here's where it gets interesting. He crossed the red-eyed progeny and noticed that the resulting grandkid flies produced mainly white-eyed males. This discovery was the first step in understanding sex linkage, a phenomenon where mutations are directly linked to genes on sex chromosomes. A human example to better explain this phenomenon is colorblindness. Colorblindness is the result of a recessive mutant gene on the X chromosome. People with two X chromosomes are therefore less likely to be affected, and even if they inherit the colorblindness gene, they have a chance of inheriting an X chromosome with a normal, dominant version of the gene, saving them from colorblindness. XY individuals have no way out. If they inherit the X chromosome with the colorblindness gene, they're stuck with it for life. Morgan also confirmed the chromosomal theory of inheritance, which was first proposed by Theodore Boveri, a German biologist, and Walter Sutton, an American geneticist around 1902-1903. In addition to this, he was able to confirm the phenomenon of crossing over, which is a key step in the formation of your germ cells. In this step, your chromosomes line up and exchange genetic material with each other like we would our lunches in elementary school. The concept was first introduced in 1909 by Franz Alphonse Janssens, a Belgian professor. Morgan's lab did so much important work for the field of genetics, even providing the first chromosomal map ever using fruit flies. This was accomplished by Alfred Strittevent, one of Morgan's students. So next time a fruit fly wants a bit of your banana or apple, let it. Don't chew it away. It's because of them that we can have things like plum cots in the grocery store. Like if you're eating a plum cot, which by the way tastes really good, and a fruit fly, you know, comes around, it's like, may I please have some, sir? Give it to them. Like, stop eating it and just give it to them because they deserve it. 
Later on in 1941 came the discovery of the exact mechanisms by which genetic expression occurs. George W. Beadle and Edward L. Tatum, American geneticists, mutated bread mold and found that some strains of the mold would not grow unless a protein building block, arginine, was provided. They discovered that the arginine-dependent mold strains could no longer use a gene that facilitates the production of arginine and, just like that, they found that genes code for proteins so that the organism can do things like live. See, all this is great, you know? We were starting to understand inheritance and knew roughly what the exact mechanism of heredity is. But the question still remained. What is a gene even? Like, physically, what is a gene? Our first breakthrough to answer this question was in 1944 where Oswald T. Avery, McLean McCarty, and Colin McLeod were conducting experiments using non-infectious and infectious strains of Pneumococcus bacterium. They found that the infectious strain of the bacterium when mixed in with the non-infectious bacterium somehow transferred their infectivity over to the non-infectious strain. They decided to treat the infectious bacterium with proteases to get rid of all the proteins but they found that this didn't really change their results. Then, they thought to treat the bacterium with DNAs. Now, DNAs is an enzyme that denatures DNA. And after transferring the infectious bacterium over to the non-infectious bacterium, the trait was no longer being transferred. He identified DNA as a molecule that plays a large role in determining the characteristics of an organism. Note that Avery says plays a large role in determining rather than determines the characteristics of. This is because he was a little cautious to boldly claim that DNA is literally the heritable material even though the facts were pointing to it. Honestly, seeing how Bateson and Pearson turned out, kind of understand his decision. Finally, in 1953 is the big story the one enshrouded in massive controversy around the stealing of data. Watson and Crick's discovery of the structure of DNA. See, Watson and Crick didn't just stumble onto the structure of DNA. There was already a considerable amount of groundwork laid forward by scientists like Avery. Initially, Watson and Crick were trying to work with a three-stranded model of DNA. It was a disaster because nothing was working out. Around the same time, Rosalind Franklin, a budding young scientist, had accepted a research position at King's College. She was to work with Maurice Wilkins, another researcher, to determine the structure of DNA. But the two of them didn't like each other at all. See, when Franklin joined, she was under the impression that she would be working independently, and Wilkins thought Franklin was to be his assistant. So you can figure out for yourself how that turned out. Wilkins would even sometimes analyze Franklin's data without her knowledge, which obviously infuriated her. She came there thinking she'd be running experiments with x-ray diffraction to meet a man who thought that she was nothing more than an assistant. Wilkins would also often get irritated with Franklin, and 
often go rant to his friends, Watson and Crick, at the University of Cambridge. Around the end of 1953, Franklin was getting ready to leave King's College because, well, she hated working there, and who can blame her? It was around this time that Watson came to visit Wilkins at King's College. During this visit, the two of them discussed Franklin's so-called hostile personality. And in addition to that, Wilkins just showed Watson the famed photo that made everything click. Photo 51 Photo 51 was an incredibly clear diffraction image taken by Rosalind Franklin and the PhD she was working with, Raymond Gosling. Watson, upon seeing this, ran back to Crick, incredibly excited that there was actual evidence for the DNA double helix model, and the two of them got right to work. Without Franklin's knowledge, they got access to her data and her research and published the paper on the structure of DNA. The funny thing is, Rosalind Franklin had already been working on the double helix model. Watson even attended a presentation where Franklin was giving a presentation on her theory behind the DNA double helix, but apparently, instead of listening to what she was saying, Watson, quote, wondered how she would look if she took off her glasses and did something with her hair, which, yikes, just, that's not what you do. I definitely think that Watson and Crick do deserve some credit on the discovery of the DNA double helix, because they did a chunk of the math. But I'm glad that we finally recognized Rosalind Franklin for her pretty massive contributions to determining the structure of DNA. See, this was another huge step forward for the field of genetics. With full understanding of DNA and genetic expression, in 1977, Walter Gilbert and Frederick Sanger deduced a technique to sequence DNA called Sanger sequencing. Later in 1986, this technique was automated by a man named Leroy Hood. After automation, sequencing became incredibly accessible. We were able to read DNA like a book. With the surge forward in genetics and with sequencing, we were able to understand the molecular basis of life, and in 2000, we were able to sequence the entire human genome. Now, research is going into annotating this genome. Knowing more about the human genome could give us incredible insight into how our body works. Genetics is the basis of so many discoveries, therapeutics, and theories. We're able to trace evolution simply by observing DNA, and knowing the sequences of genes, we can easily modify them to our benefit. There's this whole unnecessary hostility to GMOs nowadays. While it is a relatively new concept, it's valid to question the long-term effects, but they are incredibly beneficial. GMOs could be the solution to help us get through climate change with the production of, for example, drought-resistant plants and so on. See, I don't, I don't really know what people are afraid of with GMOs. Um, like, I don't know if they think there's gonna be some Spider-Man situation where you eat a plum cot and then you become, like, plum man. <sighs> with the examination of the sequences of pathogens, 
we can quickly pinpoint their infectious agents and know what to target for therapeutics. Genetic engineering is actually a very powerful tool in fighting disease. Technologies like the CRISPR-Cas9 system allow us to directly target and edit genes. CRISPR-Cas9 is actually being looked into as a way to treat genetic diseases where, in theory, we send in the CRISPR system to fix the gene. It's even holding promise as providing protection and immunity against HIV. See, HIV uses a specific receptor, CCR5, to infect our cells. When the gene coding for CCR5 is mutated or missing, it's been found that the individual is immune to HIV. So this form of treatment for HIV patients could work and is very exciting. But along with genetic engineering to cure genetic disorders and prevent disease, there are unwanted consequences to genetic engineering. This is the introduction of eugenics. If we can manipulate our genome to prevent and cure disease, why can't we manipulate our genome to select for desirable traits? Eugenics is a school of thinking where it's thought that characteristics like intelligence is encoded in our DNA. According to eugenics, only allowing humans with desirable traits to breed would allow for the generation of like a superhuman race or just the epitome of perfection, I suppose. This school of thinking directly discriminates anyone with those undesirable traits. And who would even distinguish what is desirable and undesirable? It's the people in society who hold power, aka the rich, because this technology would probably only be available to them. Human gene editing was actually momentarily introduced into the world in 2019, where a scientist claimed to have made HIV-resistant children. But it's incredibly unethical for us to like confirm or deny his claim. Like, We can't go up to a child and be like, can I inject you with HIV? And if you don't get infected, he was right. I mean, I guess if they consent to it in the future or something, or they could consent to actually getting their genome sequenced, that could be a thing. It's still incredibly unethical, though. See, supposing CRISPR babies could be a reality, the results would be disastrous. You know, like I said, it would be a luxury exclusive to the rich, and the elite would be this class of, like, super humans or something and then they take over the world and then you know our producer is taking this down because this this is a movie that i would watch crispr babies could be a good thing it would be great to live in a world free of disease but a direct consequence of developing such technology is giving the elite the power to like build a bear their children also bioterrorism becomes more of a reality That's it for this episode. I don't think I've been more stressed in my life planning for this episode. The history of genetics was way more thorough than I anticipated, and the whole every single drama situation really didn't help that much either, so I'm thinking of switching over to a bi-weekly episode release schedule. It's, it's definitely a little easier and more enjoyable for me because 
I can balance it with work and it's probably easier for Ames as well. She's the one who creates all the graphics for me and for this podcast. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode and I will catch you next time. Bye!